what we believe we believe. Why do I believe Jesus Christ to be the way, the truth, and the life? You want to be a Christian. You want to live the Christian life. But you've never learned how to live the Christian life. Hey, you're listening to Telios Talk, a podcast on being complete in Christ, hosted by Buzzsprout. Today, we are starting a series on the sacraments. Our first topic is the sacrament of baptism. Along the way, we will be jumping solidly on a few landmines that this topic has generated over the last 2,000 years. Do you support pedobaptism or adult baptism, immersion or pouring, and Are you saved by baptism? This can be a very divisive discussion, and there is no shortage of opinions as we look, today, at the sacrament of baptism. Hello and welcome to Telly's Talk. Today we will be starting a short, two-part series on the sacraments. This month I will be talking about baptism. Next month we will be joining the discussion on communion. As I'm sure you can tell, I am a little bit down with the weather, and I'm hoping that my voice holds out to the end. Before we dive in, let's quickly look at what is being referred to when we call something a sacrament. So basically, a sacrament is a Christian rite, such as baptism or communion, which is believed to have been ordained by Christ, and which is held to by the means of divine grace, or to be a sign or symbol of spiritual reality. So what are sacraments? There are seven basic sacraments that are addressed in the church. The first being baptism. The second, matrimony or marriage. The third is the Eucharist or communion. Number four, confirmation. Number five, reconciliation. Number six, the anointing of the sick. And number seven, holy orders. So do Catholics and Protestants both have sacraments? The answer is yes, but nearly all Protestant churches hold to a basic three, those being baptism, communion, and marriage. It's not surprising, then, that as pressure on Christianity builds to modernize and embrace cultural norms, the sacraments are being eroded and ignored by those who would claim to be Christians. So with that being said, let's start with today's topic, baptism. The topic of baptism is rife with controversy and disagreement. Every denomination holds its style as more biblically relevant or traditionally on point than others. Sometimes this is to the detriment of its members and new Christians. I will admit that I did find it difficult to remain impartial myself, and so it should be of no surprise that I am going to lean heavily on my own tradition when discussing baptism. Let's not forget that baptism was commanded by Jesus in Matthew 28, 19, where he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So hold on, we are about to step on today's first landmine. We are going to talk about adult versus baby baptism. So I once listened to a discussion between R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur on the topic of baptism. Now, Sproul was a staunch paedo-baptist, and MacArthur stood steadfastly on the adult baptism camp. 
After some quick jabs from each of them, they were able to turn their differences aside and continue on with the discussion. Unfortunately, this isn't the way that these discussions usually end up, and real divisions are driven between brothers in Christ. Let's look briefly at some of the biblical accounts and traditions which have generated our understanding of baptism. So let's answer this question. What about the whole families which are baptized? And we're looking at scripture such as Acts 16, verse 15, 16, 33, 18, verse 8, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 16 as well. Well, the families would have had a number of people in it. You would have had dying people. Well, dying people are addressed differently with different Christian understandings. So in the Catholic Church, an adult in danger of death may be baptized if, with some knowledge of the principal truths of the faith, he or she has some manner manifested to the intention to receive baptism and promises to observe the requirements of the Christian religion. In the Anglican Church, there is an emergency baptism which may be performed by the laity if no priest or bishop is available. The sacrament must follow the form laid out in the Anglican Book of Prayer. But whole families could have contained those who are dying. Now, obviously, they would have contained adults. As with Christ, the baptism of adults seems to have been the biblical standard. The next group we would have had in a family would have been teens. So there is this idea or this notion of an age of baptism or the age of confirmation. So as with Jesus going to the temple at the age of 12, this age is generally seen as when children become adults, as at this point when they are considered responsible. At the age of 12, Jewish boys would enter into participation in the religious life of the synagogue. The last group is babies. Now there is a Jewish tradition called the mikveh, which is about purity, where they wash babies. There is also a Jewish tradition of circumcision, which was a covenant from the Old Testament. However, neither of these traditions is consistent with baptism because it is not preceded by repentance. And this is a very important point. In all the stories of household baptisms, it is noted that they believed and were baptized. It is hard then to make a case for infant believing and likewise being subjected to baptism. But household baptisms would have included both family members and servants. Now, near the end of the first century, the writers of the Didache did not consider infants for baptism. This would have been based on the Apostolic Council, which was held in AD 50. Later, the patristic practice of Pado communion or infant communion was instituted as spiritual restoration for families of children who had died. During the fourth century, St. Gregory the theologian presumed in his writings that infants should be baptized. But he also famously wrote this, Not everyone who is good enough to be honored is bad enough to be punished. Well, this reasoning is faulty theological traditionalism, which is at best unbiblical by its very nature. In the Catholic Church, those being received who have never been baptized must make a profession of faith before they can receive the sacrament. This is not unlike the believer's baptism. But this does not exclude infants who also receive baptism. In 1545, as a result of the Reformation, the Catholic Church held the Council of Trent. Now, here are some of the decisions that they made regarding baptism. Canon 12 says, If anyone says that no one is to be baptized except that 
age at which Christ was baptized or in the very article of death, let him be anathema. Canon 13 says, if anyone says that little children, as they do not have actual faith, are not, after having received baptism, to be considered amongst the faithful, and that because of this they are to be rebaptized when they have reached the years of discretion, or that it's better to have the baptism of such omitted than that while not believing by their own act, they should be baptized in the faith alone of the church. Let him be anathema. In essence, what is being said here is that the act of infant baptism was designated as the principal act of the sacrament. Any contravention to this was anathema or formerly cursed by the Pope. Now Lutherans view baptism as conferring the Holy Spirit through the act of saying the words in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They believe this act and these words create saving faith. The infant believes supernaturally through the word and is saved through this, but they have to be brought up in instruction and can fall away from the faith. On the Global Anabaptist Mennonite Encyclopedia Online, or GAMEO, we read, All forms of Protestantism, Lutheranism, Reformed and Anglican, except Anabaptism, as well as Roman and Greek Catholicism, practiced and required infant baptism for the entire population, and this was usually required by law, thus using it as the necessary and effective instrument to continue or establish and maintain a national or mass church. Regardless of the theological meaning given to it by the church, the mass of the people of the time held infant baptism to be the magical or semi-magical means to salvation. The means of incorporation into the general Christian society and the solemn religious recognition of the beginning of life. And so, the sacrament of baptism had morphed into a political tool, and one which the Anabaptists saw as being antithetical to the teaching of Scripture. Now, that being said, if someone who was baptized as an infant chooses to join a church that practices adult baptism, I would not require them to be rebaptized. However, there should instead be some sort of confirmation or membership classes which would test their faith and they should be required to both confirm their faith to the church membership and agree with the doctrines of the church that they are joining let us step now onto landmine number two immersion versus sprinkling now let's get this out of the way right off the top the word baptize or baptizo in greek means immersion or wash depending on context Immersion denotes an act of permanence, whereas washing describes a temporary state. There is no question that if we follow the example of Jesus' baptism and the language of baptism, then baptism by immersion is the example put before us. So how did the practices of sprinkling and pouring enter into the sacrament of baptism? Although baptism by threefold immersion was certainly the common practice in the early and medieval church, it was discontinued in the course of time, except for in the Greek Orthodox Church, so that by the time of the Reformation, pouring was really the only mode commonly used. Now, I imagine that pouring worked far better with infants than full immersion, and I would have to laugh thinking about a splattering, screaming baby being held underwater by a priest attempting to maintain decorum. The Reformers continued this mode. The Anabaptists likewise used pouring, which has continued on since and is the standard mode 
among Mennonites. Some Baptist historians, in their desire to claim Anabaptist support for their immersion practice, have in fact distorted the claim that Menno Simons taught and practiced immersion. This is, however, completely in error. In fact, Menno Simons speaks in three places about the practice of baptism in his writings. If we return to the Didache, chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, it talks about immersion not being necessary. It says this, Baptize as follows, after first explaining all these points, baptize in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, in running water. But if you have no running water, baptize in other water, and if you cannot in cold, then use warm. But if you have neither, pour water on the head three times, and then the Father, and then the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. Before baptism, let the baptizer and the candidate for baptism fast as well as any others that are able, require the candidate to fast one or two days previously. At some point in the second century, Tertullian echoed this teaching, stating that the requirement for running water was not essential, and when water was scarce, methods other than immersion could be used. So very clearly, baptism is meant first to be symbolic, showing that the repentant believer is being raised from the dead. It is also the battle cry of believers and as such, those who engage in baptism ought to be prepared to fight. Let's look at a few unorthodox baptismal styles. The first is baptism with oil. The practice of baptism with oil is called chrismation. And it seems that late in the second century, the early church began to practice it. This was a symbol of Christ's rebirth and inspiration. This practice is detailed in a letter from Theophilus, Bishop of Antioch, to Autolycus. Chrismation is also defended by Hippolytus in his commentary on the Song of Songs and by Origen in his commentary on Romans. Although oil is nearly always used in the Bible for anointing, the notion of baptism by oil draws from 1 John 2 verse 20 and the account of the coming of the Holy Spirit during Pentecost as detailed in Acts 2. Today, this practice has almost completely disappeared in favor of an anointing which accompanies water baptism. There are no sources which suggest that baptism by oil ever replaced baptism with water. However, there is an account in the New Testament which brings up baptism without water. So let's talk about the thief on the cross, or the penitent thief, as he's come to be known as, which is presented in Luke 23, verses 39 to 43. It reads this way, Then the thief said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied to him, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The argument here is that our description of salvation in Acts clearly includes water baptism. But there was no water involved here, and it is clear that Jesus confirms the thief's salvation. Now, I'm satisfied in saying, hey, Jesus is God, and if he says that the thief will join him in heaven, so be it. Traditionally, what has happened here is called a baptism of desire. You know, because everything needs to be explained. According to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, for catechumens who die before baptism, their explicit desire to receive it together with repentance for their sins and charity assures them the salvation that they were not able to receive through the sacrament. Now this seems to conflict with the Council of Trent on Baptism, Canon 2, which states that if anyone says, 
that true and natural water are not necessary for baptism and on that account distorts to some sort of metaphor the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, unless a man be born again of water and the Holy Spirit, let him be anathema. Now, I don't want to be picky, but did the Catholic Church just curse Jesus? Water is the preferred method, of course, but it isn't unrealistic to think that the sacrament isn't always available. Just to turn the screw a little bit more before I continue, consider this for a moment. The New Testament teaches that salvation is by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone. So we could argue that if water baptism is necessary to obtain eternal life, why didn't Jesus say in John six forty seven, He who believes in me and is baptized has eternal life? And why didn't Luke write in Acts sixteen thirty one, Be baptized and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved? Paul himself does not seem to have been involved in performing baptisms in his letters. But none of these texts or accounts dissuade us from performing baptism or including it as a sacrament or as part of the work of salvation. Now here's the last landmine before we go on to the nuts and bolts of baptism. Baptism for the dead. I'm not going to camp here very long, however, but we do need to interpret 1 Corinthians 15.29, which reads, What will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? So are we to start practicing baptism by proxy now? The LDS Mormon Church certainly practices that. But Paul is describing the practice of people who do not agree with regular Christian teaching. His point is to show a disconnect in their thinking. Why do some people get baptized on behalf of the dead if the dead will never be resurrected? Apparently, these people believe both that the dead would only ever remain in spirit form and that being baptized on their behalf would help them somehow. Dan Doriani says this, The problem with this view is twofold. First, there is no precedent for baptism of the dead in the Bible, the early church, or pagan religions. No one knows who did it or what spiritual benefit they sought. Second, the notion of Christians being baptized for the sake of those who have died offends our theology. It sounds like a magical sacramentalism. It seems to contradict justification by faith alone. Here really is the most important question regarding baptism. Does baptism save us? Let's look at the question asked by the jailer in Acts 16.30. What shall we do to be saved? This question is answered in Acts 2, verses 37 to 39. Number one, repent. Number two, be baptized. Number three, receive forgiveness of sin. And number four, receive the Holy Spirit. Taylor Marshall, a Catholic YouTube commentator, says, The apostles and church fathers universally recognized that baptism was the instrumental means by which Jesus Christ removes sin and infuses grace. Is he right? Baptism has two roles. It is both symbolism and it is a pronouncement of intent. It's just like a wedding ring. Taking off your wedding ring doesn't make you unmarried, just like being baptized does not make you saved. Mark 16.16 says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Acts 2 verses 28 says, Repent and be baptized, each one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And so, baptism, 
without repentance is illegitimate. Luke 13.3 says, unless you repent, you will perish. Now this hits very close to home for me, and I'm sure with many of you as well. Both in my family and among my friends, there are people who are currently baptized or intend to get baptized who are not repentant. Repentance comes before baptism. But if we revel in our sin, if we identify ourselves by our sin, we are unrepentant, and our baptism is heresy. To all those who would make a mockery of baptism, this should be considered. Baptism was never intended to be cute. In the New Testament, baptism was a declaration of war and death to who we used to be before Jesus. This is why Paul reminds the church in Rome, Do you not know that all those who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? And that comes from Romans 6 verse 3. Have you forgotten what your baptism symbolized? Of course you can't go on living in sin. You have died to sin, just like the symbolism of your baptism. The old you that was dominated by sin was baptized into death. It's for this reason that baptism is more than a symbol. It is a pronouncement of spiritual warfare on sin and the principalities and the powers of darkness. If we claim to be Christian, but we're still living the same old life, then we lied at our baptism. Paul implies in Romans 6 verses 1 through 3, if a professing Christian begins to wander back into the world, we should ask them, have you forgotten the declaration that you made at your baptism? Remember your baptism. You stood before Christ and his church and communicated that your old life was gone and that you've been raised to walk in newness of life. The life you are currently living is making a mockery out of your baptism and the work you claim that Jesus did in your life. How can we who died to sin still live in it? This doesn't imply that those who are saved don't sin. It asks, how can you live in sin if you have died to sin? This talks to all those who call themselves Christians but pursue sin in their lives. According to Augustine of Hippo, sin is a word, deed, or desire in opposition to the eternal law of God. We all have sinful inclinations, and the inclination towards sin and evil is called concupiscence. You may be inclined to any of the sins that we read in Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. But if we choose to give way to these sinful inclinations, and we are unrepentant, our baptism is a mockery. Galatians 6 verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. He will not allow himself to be ridiculed, nor treated with contempt, nor allow his precepts to be scornfully set aside. Although mostly symbolic, baptism preceded by repentance are steps one and two into salvation. God forgives our sin, and then the Holy Spirit receives us to complete our salvation. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we pray that as we, as Christians, think about the sacraments, think about actions like baptism, we would understand the importance of baptism, not only 
as being a symbolic act, but also as being an act of declaration as to what we believe and who we are. Let us be aware that in this act, we come under special attack. We pray that you would give us your protection and go with us daily as we live as Christians set apart and different from the world around us. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Next month, I will be talking about communion and its role in the Christian life. As we see our churches and those professing Christians around us seeking to distort or redefine the sacraments and doctrines of the church, our job is to ask ourselves, is this in keeping with Scripture? And if not, what are the motives behind the actions we see being enacted today? Then pray for your church, pray for your fellow Christians, and pray that the Spirit of God moves among us to disturb the wanton disregard for biblical truth in society today. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Next month, Telios Talk will continue the series concerning the sacraments as we discuss communion. Who takes part in communion, and are the elements sacred? There's a lot to discover in this topic, and I'm sure you'll want to listen in. Don't forget to visit our Facebook, Patreon, and YouTube pages. We're also now on Twitter. Please check out at Telios T and follow us there. Our book, Six Good Questions, is nearing completion, so please keep checking Facebook and Twitter to see when it will be released. We're always happy to visit and answer questions. Keep us in your prayers as we prepare our podcast every month. We look forward to sharing with you again. Do we believe what we believe we believe? <laughs>